0: All right. Am I on? I'm on. All right. Well, I'm, uh, I'm very grateful and uh, humbled, I think, to be here. Um, so grateful for these students and just their willingness to, to serve and lead. And um, I am going to continue in Mark 9, and it's just a very fitting day for this text. So I'm excited about it. Um, we're going to be in, again, Mark chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse... 33, and we're going to go through 41. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, that would be, that would be good. Um, I'll give you all a second. All right. Mark 9, verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way... They had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me Because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. God, I just thank you so much for this text that you've given us. And Lord, I just pray, would you open up our hearts and minds to just receive your word today? Lord, I just thank you, Christ, for how you have so wonderfully, so perfectly Fulfilled this word, this command that you gave to your disciples and, and to us today. And I just, I, I pray, God, as we, we go through your word, would you just help us to, to grab onto more of your accomplishments in this. And Lord, help us to see what, what, what do we do? How do we live in light of these realities? Lord, we love you and we praise you for your name. Amen. All right. So I want to say before we really get into this, this just, when I, whenever I get to speak like this, I always like to title what the message is going to be. And I've, you're not going to see this, but it's just, it's in my notes. Um, I've entitled this, The Believer's Model for Humility. And that, that's really just what I want to say from the outset. There's really two things, and there's going to be a lot of points. But the theme of these texts here is this. This is about the believer Learning what it is to be humble. Because if you just stop a moment and understand, humility, that is the foundation for Christian growth. We cannot grow unless we become humble. And in contrast to that, there's some, to some degree, implicit warnings of being prideful. So we want to learn what it is to be humble. We want to be warned against being prideful. And we begin here with just a simple simple sentence in verse 33, and they came to Capernaum. Um, if you'll remember from last week, who the the they is, Jesus, the the public ministry, is not totally done. The public teaching and preaching ministry, it's not totally done, but it's it, he's pulling back, and he's going to have a greater focus now on his disciples, on the 12, really. And that's what we... we got a glimpse of last week as they were coming through Galilee, Jesus told them about his imminent suffering, death, and resurrection. And I'm just going to read that again. This is what we covered last week. It's verses 30 through 32, just to contextualize this next conversation that we're about to go into. Verse 30 through 32 of Mark. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. There's the the greater emphasis, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. So we see right there the disciples, they did not understand. They just they couldn't comprehend it. And this is not the first time that they've heard this. If you'll remember, uh, probably a couple months ago we were in Mark 8. Christ told them for the first time, the Son of Man is going to be delivered, he 's going to suffer, he 's going to die, he 's going to rise again after three days and it, it says in that text that Jesus said it to them plainly he said it to them, but from that conversation and from this conversation, where it's more there's more emphasis on it and it's more focused on them, they just they don't understand, but they also they can't understand and I use both of those words if If you'll recall from last week, we talked about how the disciples, their cultural understanding of what the Messiah would do was conquer. It's going to be a military king. He's going to come in. He's going to overthrow the Romans. and He's going to put the Jewish people on the top. That was their their understanding of what the Messiah would do. But that's a reality of why they didn't understand. But also, they couldn't, which is so interesting. And that's what we talked about from Luke last week. Um, There's a reality that Jesus is protecting his disciples from fully comprehending what he came to do. Because if they could understand and really grasp that their Savior, who they've been with for years, is going to suffer and die, it would just it would crush them. And that's something that we, I don't know that we can really get that because we didn't physically walk with Christ for three years, but they did. And so he keeps them from that comprehension. And that's a great mercy, and that's a great kindness from our Lord. And I, I just, this doesn't necessarily have any incredible bearing on this sermon today, but I just, I, I couldn't help but see in light of this conversation from Mark 8 and in the one that I just read in verses 30 through 32, I couldn't help but see the loneliness of Christ. He's got these people that are surrounding him and he's telling them, this is what I have come to do, and they, they don't understand, they, they can't understand and also, to, to go back to Mark 8, when he tells them, it's not just that they can't understand. Peter, if you'll remember, rebukes him. So these are the people that he's closest to, and they just they, they can't in any realm really comprehend what he's doing. But Christ will, willingly endures all that. And this is just another display of his, his selfless humility. But even though that's the case, the disciples, they just... They totally missed the significance of what he told them in verses 30 through 32. And it's on the coattails of that conversation as they're coming from Galilee to Capernaum that the disciples, they have a conversation of their own. And we read about it. It says that they were discussing among them which was the greatest. And here we start to see the deadly sin of pride being more concerned with, with man's opinions and, and how you rank out in society more than you are concerned with what has the Lord said. We see, that, we see the effects of this pride amongst his disciples in verse 35. It said they had argued. It wasn't necessarily a discussion. It was an argument, and it was, I would imagine, quite ugly. This is what, this is what pride does. It causes unnecessary divisions, causes fights. It brings opposition to one another, but also against God and his, his will for your life. You know this, James 4. God opposes the proud. And, I, and I, would, I would, quick word of warning, pride seems to be one of those, I don't know if you've ever heard this term, respectable sins. Kind of one of these sins that just, it gets a pass in our society. And I would even argue largely in the church. It just it kind of gets a pass. It's just this idea, everyone has pride, it's just our nature. We don't really need to think too much about it. But what has God said about pride? And I want to read just a couple verses from Proverbs to show you the severity of this sin. That it's not just it's not in any way respectable. It's not in any way passable. It's Proverbs 8 13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Proverbs 16, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Pride is a dangerous and damnable sin, and we need to comprehend that and understand that and treat it as such. But this, this conversation of who's the greatest. It's not just coming out of left field. I want to acknowledge on the one end that in every man's heart, it's deeply seated for us to be a self-worshipper, to exalt ourselves, to be full of pride of who we are. we got to understand that. But also, there's a context of where this conversation is coming from. In, in ancient Judaism, in this time that the disciples had been growing up, the religion that was instituted by God had become so perverse from what he had originally created it to be that the worshiper was essentially, in all of his practices, was doing it so that the world could see him. So that the man, through his spiritualness, through his practices, could be seen by others and the man be praised, not God. You see that. This is a far cry from what God had intended and what God had commanded in Micah 6, 8. This is what the Lord says. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is a far cry from what God had said. And I just want to take a moment to consider some of Christ's comments about the religious norms and practices of the day. And and again, I I want to go through this to, to show us This is the context that the disciples are thinking of. This is the paradigm that they're coming up with this conversation of. Who's going to be the greatest? These are some verses I'm going to skip around. This is from Matthew 6. These are our Lord's words. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward." Christ, he, he's speaking against all these things because these are the practices. This is what's typical. and the heart of them, you see it in every single one of those. What is it? Recognition by men. That the world, praise me. Look at me. Look how spiritual I am. Look how godly I am. Praise me. This is not the type of worship or the worshiper that the Lord acknowledges, though. And I want to read the type that the Lord does look upon. He does recognize and he is pleased with. This is Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's the word that the Lord looks upon. But even though in the midst of their, their convoluted, prideful minds that are just set out on their exaltation, Christ lovingly steps in to teach them a new way. And he does this by posing a question. See it in verse, or the first verse, verse 33. What were you discussing on the way? And I just, I, I, just, I love this. They've, they've come into a home now. This is probably Peter's home. It doesn't really say, but probably Peter's. And Jesus asked them this question, what were you discussing on the way? And I, and I just, let's think about that for a moment. This is Christ, the all-knowing God, perfectly searches out in the hearts and minds of every single man. He's not asking because he's curious and he really doesn't know. He knows what they were discussing. And so he just asked them, what were you discussing? And I... I just, I can't help but see this as Christ reaching out to his disciples for them to humbly confess and repent. And my mind just, my mind goes to Adam and Eve in the garden. After they've fallen and they they run, they hide from God when they hear him. And then God asks, where are you? He knows exactly where they are, but this is our Lord reaching out. And this is Christ here reaching out. I believe gently to discipline, yes, to correct, yes, to teach as well and to bring them back. And I think this is so often, even today, how our Lord will draw his wayward people back through questions from his word. And we see that clearly the disciples knew that this conversation they were having on the way was wrong because of their response, which was no response. They didn't respond, they were ashamed. It says in In verse 34, that they they kept silent. And I I think rightfully so, they were ashamed of this conversation. And then we see Christ sitting down. This is the the typical, my understanding, approach of a rabbinical way of teaching. I'm going to sit, gather around students. It's time for a lesson. And Jesus is going to teach them something that is very, very different than what they've been growing up with, what we read about in, in Matthew 6. Here's the lesson, verse 35. And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, I, I, want, I want us to, I want to go here. and I want to see what do we do with this? How, how do we understand this? How do we apply this? How do we live out of this? But before we do that, I want us to see Christ in this. Our Lord, he does not command things of himself that he does not perfectly do. Christ is the greatest example of this command right here. Because Christ is the greatest of all. And I, and I just want to take a moment and build that out really quick. I don't know if anyone's probably disagreeing with me. But you remember probably a month ago, I think it was Jeff, we, we went through when Christ and his three disciples, they went up on the mountain, and they saw him transfigured. And I, I, I can't really even comprehend what that looked like, what that entailed, but in my mind, it's, it's just like there's this fleshly veil, and it's kind of pulled back ever so slightly, and you get just a glimpse of the glory and the majesty of, of Christ. And you see his disciples, and it's like, we don't want to go. We want to stay here. Let's, let's make some tents. We'll make some food. Let's just stay and see you and, and behold you. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1, by him, all things were created. That's by Christ in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. And for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. In 1 Corinthians, he's called the Lord of glory. And we read about this in Hebrews, these, these heroes of the faith, and I, even as I say that, you may be thinking of people people from this, this book that you've read about, and they just they stick out in your mind of being very faithful men and women who follow the Lord and do incredible things every single one of those, Christ is greater than them all. And I think you take every man, woman, child from the most powerful in this world to the most pitiful. You take every mountain, take every valley, every star from the most glorious to the smallest one. You take the largest ocean and the smallest puddle. You take everything in this world that God has created and you put them together and the sum of them does not compare to the glory of Christ. And it's in light of this, he deserves all praise, all glory. Hold, hold on to that. Because we need to recognize that. We need to understand that for the next part. Because this, this God who's greatest, he became last. He became the servant. And I want to, how? How did he do that? Well first of all he humbled himself by being born born in the likeness of men Philippians 2 tells us and I d- just think about that for a moment Christ could have come in some he did come in a miraculous way but he could have come in some glorious way that when people looked at him they would have said this man is infinitely greater than everyone else but he, he didn't he didn't come in that way he came in the form of a of a humble infant Isaiah 53 even says of his physical appearance. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Even in his coming into this earth, it was, it was humble. Christ embraced dishonor and humiliation by adding to his divine nature a human nature. That's Philippians 2, 7-8. Christ was always, you see it throughout the you see it throughout the gospels, this man, this man who's willing consistently to heal, to teach, and to just be with people, even to the point where he is physically worn out, exhausted. I think this is so beautifully, so clearly exemplified in John 13 when he, he washes his disciples' feet. Christ suffered at the hands of men physically, and he endured the troubles of this world. This is the Lord of glory suffering. He opened himself up to contempt and verbal abuse by the very people that he created and was upholding and came to save. Ultimately, Christ submitted himself to death, and even death on a cross, where he was crushed, where he was killed. By God as a guilt offering for our sins. He endured, this is Christ who never once, never once endured any separation from his Father. He endured being forsaken by his Father so that God would not forsake you and I. Christ is the ultimate, the perfect example of what does it mean to be last. This is the greatest of all becoming the slave, becoming the servant. This is skipping ahead a bit, but it just—it's so encapsulates this idea. It says, "Mark, ten forty-five. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many." Amazing. But but what about us? Let's, let's bring it down to our level on a practical side. How do, how do we? How can we be last? What is what does this look like? Well, first off, I want to say this. this. This text, this is not about what does humility feel like. That's kind of the ironic thing about humility. Once you feel humble, you're really being prideful, and you need to take a step back and kind of acknowledge, <laughs> I'm not in the right spot here. It's kind of like back to square one. This is about what does humility do. What does humility look like? And Jesus uses, if you will, an object lesson to illustrate this point. Brings a child to himself. We read about in verse 36 and 37. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. My understanding of, of the word here, this child most likely was a, a child around the age of two or three, I guess you could say a, a, a toddler. Um, now why, why is that significant? Why do I, I bring that up? Well this is significant in, in that era. Children oftentimes, from my understanding, they, they wouldn't live past the age of six. They were seen in so many ways as just a burden. They didn't offer any value. Just, just another mouth to feed. And the simple thought from, I believe, this text, and we're going to read about it in a minute, from Matthew 18, the parallel text to this is, what can a child really do for themselves? And, I mean, the answer is nothing. They can't do anything. They're totally dependent upon another. This child, he's rep- it's representative of believers. I think it's helpful at this point to go to Matthew 18. I'm going to read a short excerpt from this. I believe it's verse uh, 2. This is the parallel account, again, to this text in Mark 9, where Jesus expands. We get a more kind of expansive look at this. This is Jesus speaking. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I have have four things here that I just want to kind of quickly go through. And, And the last one is really the point that I want us to continue on, the point from Mark's account. But I think it's helpful to go through these other things to understand what does humility do? What does humility look like in the life of a believer? First thing we see in Matthew 18, to even... Enter the kingdom. What does that mean? To even be saved. To even become a Christian. Takes humbling yourself like a little child. I mean, the simple thought, again, is I have to get over myself and recognize I have nothing to offer to my salvation. No ounce of righteousness. I am totally dependent on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's all I need for my salvation. And a warning here against pride your pride will cause you to minimize the wickedness and the depravity of your own heart and your own sins to such a degree that you will not see the Savior. If you can't see your sin, you can't see the Savior. Continue on that point to even grow in this kingdom, to even grow in our, our, our likeness of Christ, the you know, the theological word, to be sanctified, process of sanctification. I must be totally dependent on the Lord. It's not my effort, really. Jesus is called the founder, but also the perfecter of our faith. I think the point, one of the points from both of these is so contrary to our way of thinking, so contrary to the disciples' way of thinking as well, the path to greatness in the kingdom is not through exalting yourself, it's not through making sure other people know how great you are, it's through humble service and acceptance of one another. I think the main point that I, I want to continue on after this is from Mark's account. And the, the main thing we need to see from this is how you treat others. And I think particularly how you treat other Christians is a direct correlation to how you treat and view Christ. Christ says at the end of this in verse 37, to receive that child is not simply to just receive the child, but God who identifies himself with that child. So then the question that comes to my mind is, what does it look like to receive? What does it mean to receive one another, practically speaking? And that's where the practical side comes in. And I don't I'm about to go through some things. This is not in any way an exhaustive list. This is just some practical examples that I've pulled, not from my mind, but from God's word of how do we as believers receive one another. And also I'd add, how do we lovingly serve this lost world around us? We need to look to other people's interest. We need to consider if, what are my words, what are my actions, how do they affect another person? What does that person need? I mean, Philippians 2 puts it in the way. If we need to consider other people, just simply put, more important than ourselves, amazing and incredibly difficult. We need to consider, how can I serve my brothers and sisters? What do they need? We need to consider, I mean, brethren, we've got lost people all around us. We need to consider, how can I lovingly serve them? How can I show them the love of God? We need to be praying for one another. We need to consider, this is jumping ahead to next week, is what I'm going to do, is it going to cause someone else, a brother or sister, to stumble into sin? If it is, away with it. Away with it. We need to bear with one another through sin, humbly forgiving, because we've been forgiven. We need to not see some task or opportunity to serve as, as beneath us, because that's such a far cry from what our Lord did. I think, again, these are just some simple examples, but the point is reception of one another, acceptance of one another, and even, even care towards this world, it serves as something. It serves as an indication of our faith. Put it in a different way. We receive one another because Christ first received us, and he now identifies himself with us as believers. But in all this, We always go back to Christ. He perfectly did this for us. He's the model. He's also the hope. As we we move to this last section here, um, I just, you know, I gotta confess, I I just, I really almost didn't want to even talk about the last part because I just didn't see how in the world are these connected. These need to be two different weeks. But, you know, again a reminder of kind of the two parts here this is about the believer understanding what does humility do and on the inverse the dangers of pride in the first half of this we kind of were discussing how the disciples were they were concerned with who among them is going to be considered the greatest they were competitive and some commentators would say at this point in verse 38, after Christ has taught the lesson, being first would be last, the greatest is the servant. After this lesson, John's conscience becomes troubled. He, he goes into a specific event, and we read about it in verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. That's unknown who this guy is, that they're talking about, where this was, you don't know. But Christ verifies this was a real miracle. He calls it, in verse 39, a mighty work. He's verifying that was real. But even though this man was successful in his exorcism, if you will, and that was such a clear display of the power of the Holy Spirit working through that man, the disciples tried to stop him. But Christ, he corrects that way of thinking in verses 39 through 40. Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. Here's the connection between these two passages. Pride destroys unity, but humility is the key to a unified body. And I just want to, I want to consider for a moment um, Paul's encouragement to the church in Ephesians chapter 4. I can remember after we went through this, um, oh, I don't know, probably two years ago or so, we, we worked through this book here at South City. Just That just stuck out in my mind that Ephesians 4, this is like life in the body chapter. This is what it looks like. This is what it is. And it's the quintessential understanding and I want to just read a short excerpt from that. This is Paul speaking I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility encourages growth go back to the disciples, it's like it's just like in their arrogance, in their pride, they just, they couldn't conceive of someone outside of their group being able to do this. I and mean, that's what he says here. He says he wasn't following us, so we tried to stop him. Couldn't conceive of it. This is, what, this is what pride does. It's exclusive. It's alienating to others. And on the inverse of that humility, it bears with and it includes others. I think a simple point from this, this text here in the last half that we can kind of glean from this. God's kingdom, it's, it's diverse. We got, we got all these different people, different backgrounds, different gifts, different ministries, different ways of, of structuring things. It's, it's amazing to see this. I think it's Ephesians 1 talks about it's, it's the manifold wisdom of the church. It's this multifaceted thing. Now, before I want to say a couple more things about that, before I do, I want to, I want to really say this: when I say diverse, our faith is not diverse. It is, it is very inflexible, and it is very exclusive. We hold to one faith that unifies us, one faith that was handed down to us. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. That part is not that part is not flexible. It's incredibly rigid we got to also understand here from this that just because other people may they may think a little bit differently in this body they may structure things a little bit differently in this body we can't so quickly go to it's wrong just because they think a little bit differently that's that's what our pride does that's what it causes us to think that that our way of doing things our way of structuring things is right and i would even go and say pride makes you think my way is biblical everybody else's way is unbiblical that's what pride does. We exalt our way, we dismiss everybody else's. We, we can't, in our pride, hold so fast to, to things and to traditions and preferences that are not biblically mandated, again, not biblically mandated, that we end up alienating ourselves from other parts of this diverse body that our Lord has, has, has made as we move on to this, this last portion, we get to kind of the heart of what the disciples were after in verse 41. How do, we, how do we get rewarded? How do we get rewarded? It's verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Christ encourages his disciples that kindness and humble service towards other believers, that's the way to greatness. That's the way to be rewarded. It's it's interesting. He assures them you won't lose your reward. Why why assure them of that? Well, this assurance, it comes in light of the religious attitudes of the day. Again, going back to to Matthew 6, in many ways, the, the heart of worship, it had just become... Self-exaltation. Let me do things so that others can see. And the worry here for these disciples, if, if I follow the example of our Lord here, if I humble myself, if I commit myself to lowly service, I won't be seen as great by others. <laughs> In fact, I may not be acknowledged at all. I may not be seen at all. Now, I want to take a quick detour here before we continue on. Um, I, I, I've grown up in the South all my life I've been here um, and I know I think largely our culture is moving away from this and you can argue whether or not that's good or bad I know for many being a Christian is just simply keeping up with moral and social expectations of others and if I could put it in a sentence it'd be something like well, good people go to church, so I'm going to go. I mean, the heart of that is just pride. Look at me. I've been going to church for years. I've been tithing. I've been giving. I've been doing all this stuff. Please, please see I'm good. See I'm a good person. It's concerned with just your reputation among whatever culture you're in, your, your status, and even maybe in the church, accomplishments and titles that others can give you. To just simply be recognized by others, not to worship the Lord, it's just it's just prideful gain. I would offer a quick word of warning: if the if it's with what's consistent for you and what drives you to be a part of the body of Christ is just simply to kind of satiate the others' expectations, so that other people can see you and think that you're you're good. I'd I'd say that's the heart of. The people in Matthew 6, and their reward was received, not in the life to come, but here. There won't be one in the life to come. That's not the heart of the of the believer. But Christ gently assures them that humble service is the way of God. And though others may not see it, the Lord sees it. And He's pleased with it. And He knows. The proper time to exalt His people, and as I was just as I was thinking through this, um, so many of your faces came to my mind, so many of you, and I just I know there are some of you here, and you you serve, you care, and you minister to God's people and and to this world, and your heart is to see the Lord's kingdom advance. But the reality is so often in our, in our service, and our giving, we don't see the fruit of it very often. Sometimes we don't see the fruit of it at all. In this life, we don't. Some of you may be at the point of just whatever that, that ministry is, just kind of taking a step back, giving up. But I want to encourage us Whatever that service is, the Lord sees it. And He's pleased. And I want us to have an eternal perspective in all these things. This is a this is a short excerpt from Revelation nineteen. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Whatever it may be, don't don't lose heart in your service. These are the these are the things that follow us into eternity. But Christ is our example in all this, and I want to read just. From Philippians two, a short excerpt of his his incredible humility, his service, and lastly his exaltation. It's Philippians two. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love The Father. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart in your service. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for Christ and just how he is the perfect fulfillment of all of this. Jesus, thank you for humbling yourself even unto death for our sakes. Thank you for receiving us in regenerating our hearts to where we, we love you and we love one another and we receive one another and we serve one another, Lord. God, I pray help us to um, come out of this looking to you, looking to your fulfillment of all these things and asking how, how can we serve one another? How can we love one another? We love you. We praise you. Amen.